You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Question for you. Have you heard of a man named Costi Hinn? Peter has? Right on. All right, you might have recognized the last name Hinn. All right, he, Costi Hinn, is the nephew of kind of an infamous, I'll, I'll use the word infamous, infamous televangelist named Benny Hinn. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? All right, Benny Hinn, yeah. So Benny Hinn was a man, he still is a man, he's still alive. <laughs> he is still alive. And he, he's, as I said, he's a televangelist. Uh, he was, you know, kind of a word of faith healer, kind of a, a dubious fellow. And he drew a lot of attention, still does, from the media and from the world for his, his very lavish lifestyle that he chooses to live and his, his dubious ways of getting money, <laughs> Uh, from people and promising God's favor, blessing, and healing if you give him money. All right, so not a not a very good guy, I don't think. But anyways, Costi Costi Hin is his nephew, and in his words, he grew up in the family business of prosperity gospel, of faith healing, all that sort of thing. And Costi recounts the opulence and the wealth that he was surrounded with most of his, his growing up years. You know, he was flying around the world in private jets, uh, family vacations in, in the best places of the world, driving amazingly nice cars, and having multiple, multiple huge houses scattered around. And the thing that, about Costi, though, that is different than his uncle, is that he actually responded to Jesus' call, and he changed his life. He walked away, according to what I've been reading, he walked away from this prosperity gospel that his uncle preached, and he gave it all up because, get this, he actually started to read the Bible. (laughs) What? And he actually started to seek to understand what it actually meant, and not just what his uncle and his family were saying. The message that his family was living out and preaching didn't match up to what the Bible actually says. God doesn't actually promise us wealth and perfect health if we give enough money. Praise God for that. Instead, God calls us out, God calls out to us, sorry, and instead of promising us wealth, God promises to be faithful to us no matter what our bank account says. And we have the opportunity to respond to God in joy and generosity. And now, as I understand it, Costi Hinn is a, is a pastor in Arizona now. And from what I can see and hear on the internet, obviously I've never met him, but it seems as he's living a life that is faithful to God and responding to God out of love. He's living a true life of God. And I often think that people now, as in, in Jesus' time and probably throughout all of history, we look at people who are wealthy... <laughs> with a mixture of both admiration and disgust. I'll be honest with you, right? We see someone, perhaps someone like Benny Hinn. I don't know if you've seen him. He has kind of a funny-looking haircut. But anyways, we envy his lifestyle, right? He's flying around in this private jet. He has, you know, 
the opulent lifestyle because it looks good, right? I'm like, seriously, who, who wouldn't want to have a private jet? I think that'd be pretty neat. But we are also filled with frustration and anger when we see that because he has so much. And he has probably done some very dubious and dirty things to get that money. It kind of reminds me of looking at Zacchaeus in the Bible. And I imagine that people around him looked at his life, you know, his nice villa that he lived in, maybe his uh, brand new high top sandals that he wore, his souped up donkey. I don't know, he was short, so he, had, he couldn't get on a horse. So, you know, he, he was riding the best donkey around and they said to himself, man, that guy is so rich. I kind of wish I was like that. But then at the same time, they're like, he took my money. So he's kind of dumb. All right, so admiration and disgust, you know. And I, I look also at someone like Costi Hin, though, and from what I've found, who was in that grandiose lifestyle, that very rich life, and then he heard Jesus call out to him. And he responded by coming down and welcoming Jesus into his house, which also sounds a little bit like Zacchaeus. So let's read the story of Zacchaeus together. And as we do, I want you to try to contrast it in your mind. Um, a few weeks ago, we heard the story of the rich ruler. All right, so contrast that story and the story of Zacchaeus as we read it today. So in Luke chapter 19, I'm going to read the first nine verses to start with. And it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Hmm. In this encounter with Jesus, we find Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector that was rich and who was very curious to see Jesus. In that way, he seems to be kind of like that rich ruler from a few weeks ago who came to see Jesus, wanting to know what he needed to do next. Zacchaeus hears that Jesus was in his town in Jericho, and I can imagine that he had heard about his teachings and was interested in seeing who this man was. His curiosity caused him to actually run, which was uncommon for a man of his social position, and then to climb a tree, which, although is something I think we all wish we could do and still remain socially appropriate, it was very uncommon as well. Who's climbed a tree in the last year? Anyone? 
Nice. Thank you. I like that. I wish I, I should. Maybe this afternoon. As Jesus walks by this tree, this sycamore tree, I, I really imagine that he probably had a smile on his face and maybe he, he, he chuckled a little bit as he looked up into the tree to see a wee little man perched on a branch. And he turned Irish there for a second. Jesus calls out to him by name, and Zacchaeus responds by jumping down from the tree and receiving him joyfully into his house. What a difference Zacchaeus' response is compared to the rich ruler's response of walking away sadly because he wasn't willing to change his life. It doesn't seem like the crowd likes what's going on at this moment, though. They don't like the fact that Jesus is going to a sinner's house. For one, they, they, they just don't like Zacchaeus, right? They don't like Zacchaeus. They don't like the fact that Jesus was willing to hang out with Zacchaeus. He was the one who was corrupt. He was the one stealing their money, taking money from them, and who took more than what he needed to, more than what was fair, and who lived, I would imagine, in an opulent lifestyle with the proceeds of his crimes. Zacchaeus was not well-liked. And as we look at this story, it's interesting because there seems to be things that are not recorded in the text, right? It doesn't actually tell of Jesus and Zacchaeus walking into his house or going there. It doesn't, resp- it doesn't tell us of Jesus dining with Zacchaeus. It doesn't tell of the conversation that he might have had with Zacchaeus. All right? It, it seems to me that there, there's like purposefully parts left out of that story. But all the text tells us is Zacchaeus' response to the joyful call of Jesus, inviting himself into Zacchaeus' house and his life. Zacchaeus' response seems to be said in public, though. Right? The crowd grumbled, and Zacchaeus responded. And in response to the crowd's grumbling, it, it's like he was trying to defend himself or show that the people that he was a changed man, which he was. And Zacchaeus says in front of Jesus in the crowd, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Wow. When Jesus calls out to us, and we respond in love and joy, that Jesus is calling us by name, generosity abounds. Zacchaeus' actions here, as pointed out by Jesus, indicate a complete change in heart, a complete change in life. Jesus announces that salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house and that he who was lost has now been found. He who was lost has now been saved. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19 verse 10 has been called the mission statement of Jesus because it sums up his complete mission and life here on earth. It silences the grumblings of the crowds as it clearly states what Jesus was doing. 
Zacchaeus was lost, and now he has been sought out and found. And again, earlier in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 5, 31 and 32, it's not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. Jesus stated, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Of course, Jesus would go to the house of a sinner. That should come as no surprise to us. As the crowd was still gathered around Jesus and Zacchaeus, they witnessed a lost sheep of Israel get found. And before they could perhaps start to think that they didn't need finding or that they were already found, Jesus tells them a parable about the coming kingdom of God. So let's pick up the Bible again and read from Luke chapter 19 again, uh, verses 11 to 27. And it says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Where am I? There it is. <laughs> Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful with very little, I will make you authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Then another said, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. So he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he already has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. In this parable, we find the nobleman, who is Jesus, please read that, about to leave for a far country to go and receive the authority to become the king of the land that he is now in. This represents that Jesus will soon be crucified, resurrected, and he will ascend into heaven where he will receive authority to return to earth as king one day. He calls ten servants, 
which represents all of Jesus' disciples and followers, which includes us, and gives them each an equal amount of money, a mina, which is about three months' wages, and tells them to engage in business until he returns. This is different, I want to point out, from another similar parable found in Matthew 25, where the servants are given different amounts of money according to their ability. And here we are told that the servants are all given the exact same thing and told to go about the king's business. And so the question is, what does this mina, this amount of money, what does it represent? Does it represent money or influence or gifts? That doesn't seem to really make sense, though, because the nobleman gives it an equal measure to all of his servants. You know, if we look around us, we, we don't all have the same measure of money or power or earthly influence. We don't all have the same amount of resources available to us as we live this life. And so the question is, what has Christ given to each of us that is in equal measure? Life. The good news. We have all received life. Quite literally, we have all received a set of breaths that will sustain us until we die. And as servants of God, we have all received the good news of Jesus Christ. And we all, along with that, have received this same command. Engage in business until I come. That's what Jesus said in the parable. And that's what Jesus is saying to us today. Carry on doing my business. These servants had been given money and responsibilities and at the same time, there are these others in the lands who are not servants. And instead, they are named as citizens. And it doesn't seem like they are neutral <laughs> citizens either. But they are ones who hate this nobleman. And who do not want him to come back to be king. In the short term, around in Jesus' day, these citizens could be compared to the Jewish people. Especially the Jewish leaders who expected the Messiah to come back very quickly and save them from the power and the rule of Rome. This was not, however, the kingship that Jesus had in mind. And so he wasn't really understood. And he, in fact, he was hated by the Jewish leaders. In the parable, the, the citizens didn't like the future king. They hated him and wanted to reject him. And I believe that even now, if we look around us, there are people who refuse to acknowledge the sovereignty of God or even the existence of God and would rather that he didn't come back because that will result in a, I don't know, an uncomfortable moment of judgment, to say the least. The servants go about their master's business with varying degrees of return. One turned his mina into ten more. That's a pretty good turning of business, and another turned his into five, which is really good as well. And the third did nothing with it and was lazy, and he made excuses. The servants that actually did something with their money were commended for their service. They were called good servants and given even more responsibilities. And the third servant 
however, was condemned. And what little he actually had was taken from him. And the citizens, strong language here, but they were slaughtered, it says. Yikes. Because the king was sovereign and he dealt with his enemies. And so what do we learn from this? Let's go back to Jesus' mission statement in verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what the king's business was and is about. And we, his servants, are to carry on his business with what he has given us. Zacchaeus is called upon Jesus to most literally serve him. Zacchaeus is asked to show Jesus hospitality and serve him food. Right? That's what coming into someone's house signified back then. That Jesus was seeking hospitality. Zacchaeus responds to this call to service with joy and with generosity. It seems that Zacchaeus immediately picks up the call of Jesus to carry on with the business of Jesus by generously transforming the whole community of, Jer- of Jericho. Think about it, though. I would imagine that everyone in Jericho would somehow feel and know the blessing of Zacchaeus' newfound generosity and giving. I would imagine that probably not very many people in Jericho had not been cheated by Zacchaeus. And so all of a sudden, there was money. There was blessing from Zacchaeus. I want to add another layer to this story. Earlier in the book of Luke, once again, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector who go up to pray. And we read about this, we read about this a few weeks ago as well. And we found out that it was the tax collector who received mercy and went home with his life made right before God. Could it possibly be that Zacchaeus may have heard this parable from someone? This is a hypothesis, but Jesus was a famous rabbi, and I'm sure his teachings were repeated. So Zacchaeus, the tax collector, could have known that in Jesus' mind, even a tax collector's life could be changed, could be transformed. And maybe these words impacted him so much that he was driven by curiosity and wonder to see the person who had said them. When Jesus comes through Jericho and calls out to Zacchaeus, truly in mercy and not in judgment for what he had done, Zacchaeus responds with joy and with excitement, thinking that, yes, I too can have my life changed. Zacchaeus becomes a servant of the king and immediately resolves to use his mina, his life, to carry on doing the business of Jesus. Kosti Hinn had his life changed by the encounter with the true God, which was not very much like the old God that his uncle had been preaching. Jesus called out Kosti with mercy, and Kosti repented and walked away from doing the family business and started doing God's business. 
he started fresh. And I can imagine he probably had a lot to learn and, and to relearn about life and about serving God and about actually serving other people. Zacchaeus had a lot to relearn about his job as well, about following Jesus instead of being greedy. He probably failed a lot of times as he had to turn his business dealings around. And I can imagine that was a lot of awkward moments where he, you know, came up to someone with money and had to apologize. I'm sorry. I hope this makes things at least a little bit more right. For Zacchaeus' past mistakes, he would have had to apologize. And probably for his current ones as well. Because I'm sure that there was times when he fell back into greed and fell back into that. We all know following Jesus is not just like a clear-cut path. But Jesus has given each one of us one set of breaths. It's not like a video game where we can keep on trying it again and again until we reach the the goal. We only get one life. And like the servants of this nobleman in the parable, we can choose what we do with it. At the end of all things, though, we will all have to stand before God, like the servants before the nobleman, and give an account of what we did with what we were given. We can choose to live in fear which leads to apathy and laziness like that third servant. But let me ask you, this is a tough question. If this servant chose to do nothing with his, the money that he was given, what was he doing? He wasn't serving. He wasn't going about his master's business. He was a horrible servant. If you were a servant of God in name only, what are you doing? Do you expect to receive a reward for faithful service if all you did was take up space in the house and not conduct any business on behalf of your master? Praise be to God who is rich in mercy and love, and who calls out to us, come down, I'm coming to your house today. Just like Zacchaeus and Kostihin, your life and my life can be transformed by the mercy of God if we joyfully receive him. I would like to be counted among those first two servants giving an account of their business. (laughs) I do want to note something, though, here. These two servants were both given the same amount of money at the same time. But when the king returned, they had conducted business differently. And they had ended up with different results. One had more money than the other at the end of this time. That's what we were told. We weren't told that one was better than the other, but both were commended and given a reward. So what does that tell me? I believe that means that God just wants us to be faithful with what we have. He doesn't require a certain amount of success from each of us. I'm not exactly sure how rewards and responsibilities in heaven work. 
and what being put in charge of ten cities or five cities really means when we, when we stand before God. But I do know that God gives us life. He gives us the good news and he calls us to go about his business. He gives us the Holy Spirit, as Paul reminds the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, where it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He has given us everything we need to be about his business. And there's freedom in that, right? There's no set pathway to our faithfulness success. There are different outcomes in our faithfulness to God's business. In each of our lives, we have different opportunities. We have different friends. We have different family. We have different jobs. And those all present us with different opportunities. We have different abilities. We have different gifts. All these things that make us individual, that make us unique. And as it says in 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we go about God's business, things are going to turn out differently for all of us. So let us go with the Holy Spirit and the strength that God provides. Serving God and giving your life to him is not always the easy path, right? I'm sure we, you can all agree with that from the experiences that we have. There, there will be hardship and suffering. There will be strained and perhaps broken relationships. You will have to apologize to people because we all mess up. The beauty of grace, of Jesus coming to seek and to save the lost, is that he keeps seeking us when we wander away. He keeps calling us out of the trees that we're trying to be inconspicuous in. He keeps loving us no matter how many times we get lost. Do you know what Billy Graham and my two grandmothers have in common? They all received Jesus when, they called, when he called them by name. They all received their one set of breaths from God and they all went about God's business. They had different results for being faithful. Billy Graham preached to the whole world. Millions upon millions of people heard him speak. And many millions received Jesus as their savior through his ministry. He prayed, he counseled many U.S. presidents and he was faithful and he received his reward. Selma Falk and Katie Clausen 
lived lives of integrity and honesty. They lived in Alberta their entire lives, most of that on farms. They were faithful wives, mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers. And both of them loved to spoil their grandchildren with homemade cookies. They were faithful and both received their reward. Jesus is calling you by name. Jesus is seeking out the lost. If you've never come down from your tree and received Jesus with joy, receive Jesus now. If you've been lazy and not going about God's business, receive Jesus now. Jesus wants to come to your house and transform your life. Thank you.